Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is the book of the people. To be opened and read when we reach the new world of the promise. It was given by the creators. Do the people know the contents of their book? Only that it tells of our world here. And why soon, one day, we must leave it for the new world. You know, sometimes when I think about the 70s, I think about the Star Trek Bantam novels. But this novel that we're going to talk about came out in 1980. So it just fell out of that window. So a lot of the Bantam novels haven't really worked for me all that often, but I haven't read that many either. So maybe one day I will. But this one might work for me. And it's the Galactic Whirlpool. Welcome, everyone. To Positively Trek, I'm Bruce Gibson, and with me, with book in hand, is Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Bruce, I'm doing pretty well. Really excited to talk about this novel. And it's funny, you talk about the 70s and thinking about the Bantam novels. I'm really kind of guilty of dismissing the Bantam novels and not really giving them much thought. And, you know, when I think of like my goal to read all of Star Trek novels, my brain kind of starts with the novelization of the motion picture and goes forward with the pocketbooks line and that sort of thing. But there's some stuff in the Bantam novels that, you know, really I I should give it more credit and kind of go back and look at them because I have to say my experience reading this one definitely opened my eyes a bit and and to hear you say what you just said about the bantam novels maybe this isn't really representative of them as a whole but at the same time it's definitely piqued my interest a bit more than uh, than it was before well there was a time that we did review spock must die which is the mm-hmm. first and yeah. we both enjoyed it we both like that that's one. true yeah but i know years ago i read things like the price of the phoenix and the fate of the phoenix and i don't know the mud one and i don't know there was a few in there that i just remember i kind of struggled with but mm-hmm. that was early early in my days of reading star trek novels and i'm curious maybe one day we could read those because i might have a different take on them yeah, I'd be interested in in checking them out. I mean, I don't know much about them beyond, of course, the two that we've now read and just the titles of some of the other ones and, and some random things people have said. But looking at the list of them, there's certain ones that at least make me raise an eyebrow, like Vulcan with an exclamation mark. Right. Like, what What's that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I can't remember, but I don't think I've read that one. I Hmm. But see, yeah. But I know there's others with judgment. There's some judgment thing. I don't remember. I just remember. Trek to Mad World is one. Yeah. It's an interesting title. I think I read that one. I think I did. I just remember back in the day when I read them, I found some of them to be a bit weird or a little confusing. I don't know. I'd like to maybe check some of those out. And I never read this one. The Galactic Whirlpool. And... 
I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like it. But then I saw David Gerald wrote it. And he's, Mm -hmm. of course, famous for writing The Trouble with Tribbles. So I thought, and seriously, I know I said this. Well, it's out of the 70s. But I almost felt like by the time they got to the 80s, they started doing things better on the novels. Not always. I've read some clunkers even in the pocketbook line. Oh, yes. There are a few of those. Yeah. But I feel like there was some better ones in there, and I and I think that this one fits into that better side of things. Mm-hmm. So that being said, we both like the novel, and so Dan, when people want to talk to you about novels online, where can they find? Oh wait, I don't want to end the show yet. We got to go into this a little <laughs> more, but you know we got to talk about this as if you've read it. And if you haven't read it, people, well then we're going to spoil things for you because we're going right into the book. And I thought it'd be fun to read the description. We typically don't read the descriptions, but I don't know. I just thought it was a good summary of what this book is about. So I can read it, or Dan, you can read it, because I know you like doing them. So I'll offer it to you first. If not, then I'll read it. Sure. Okay. Well, beyond the realm of the Federation, beyond the edge of the galaxy, a lost colony of humans in space drifts inexorably toward the galactic whirlpool. Kirk blazes new star trails to these strange people, isolated for centuries. Unless he can convince them that the Enterprise crew members are not demons, they will be sucked into a churning one-way funnel of doom. (laughs) That sounds like a ride (laughs) at an amusement park. The funnel of doom. You want to ride it? (laughs) I love it. I love this description because right off the bat in the first sentence, there's hyperbole that is not correct beyond the edge of the galaxy. Nope. Nope. They're in the galaxy. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And the funny thing is I didn't actually read this description before I read the novel. And I'm kind of glad I didn't because I didn't immediately know that this huge spacecraft that they come across is a lost human colony. That was a nice thing to kind of discover as I read it. And I mean, there's little hints in there and you're like, Oh, I feel like this came from earth and they're going to find that out. But it wasn't a sure thing until you get to that reveal, uh, unless you read this description, in which case, Oh, you already know that. I must've read a different description somewhere else, like on Goodreads or on Amazon or something. But I remember reading it and thinking, Oh, it's about this galactic whirlpool, the Sonomaly that is coming to a planet that has a human population that the Enterprise has to save. And I thought, this is kind of an interesting time to read this book because it sounds like the season of Discovery. (laughs) It's really funny. That was going through my head as well because they describe this anomaly, this galactic whirlpool, which, by the way, I should say doesn't show up until more than halfway through the book, which is kind of funny. But this galactic whirlpool, they say, is a pair of black holes that are like churning against one another or something like that, which if you watch the season premiere of Discovery is one of the theories about what this big anomaly in season four of Discovery is. I thought that was kind of interesting. There were a lot of really strange parallels there as we were reading this that I was like, hey, this is really reminding me of what's going on in Discovery right now. You know, now I'm starting to wonder, did they get that idea from this book? I don't think so, but possibly. It's, you know, what's funny is I didn't feel like they maybe got the idea from the book, 
but I think both David Gerald and the writers of this season of Discovery consulted with astrophysicists because a lot of what they're saying in this book sounded very plausible. And we know that there's a very talented, very knowledgeable astrophysicist on staff as the science consultant for Discovery. So I just, I really felt like, you know, maybe there was some ideas kind of cross-pollinating there or something, but to me, it really felt like they just both did their research, which I really appreciated. There is a lot of detail in some of these chapters, not of just the galactic whirlpool, but of this ship and about the people on the ship. And there were times where I was reading, there was even little side stories that it was like, okay, it seems like David Gerald has all these ideas for a story that he can't write that novel. So he's going to tell you the story within the novel because there's so much detail in that story that you could write a novel that's just that story, you know, because mm-hmm. like this lost colony ship, I mean, it takes up a good chapter of the events of what led to the ship being out here in the galaxy because, you know, in the, I guess it was the, the early part of the 21st century or something like that, that this structure was built above earth. And I don't know if they really gave the exact t- time frame, but what's interesting, it was a joint venture between the U S Japan and the Soviet Union, which mm-hmm. then I thought, well, this kind of dates the book, obviously, 1980, right? But then I thought in my head, I was like, what if the Soviet Union returned? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's entirely possible. I would cite as canon, at least in the universe in which Star Trek takes place, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home which of course was written in 1986. So, you know, there's, there's that, but they, they're giving the status reports of the effects that the probe, the whale probe is having on earth. And at one point they say Leningrad has lost all electrical power. So at some point in the Star Trek universe, Leningrad, which was named back to St. Petersburg after the fall of the Soviet union was once again named Leningrad. So, you know, that's a big hint that maybe the Soviet Union came back. Exactly. So, you know, this <laughs> book predicted that, right? So mm-hmm. there's something else, though, which we'll get to later. I think I have in, in the notes that this book, I think, predicts correctly or something. Anyway, I, I just remember there's something in here. So hold on. Grab onto your seats, people, because we're going to hit that later. But anyway, this whole ship is being built because there's like this energy crisis in a sense on earth, you know, that there's fossil fuels that other nations offer to other nations. And so there's, if, if you're not producing your own energy and fossil fuels, you're relying on these others. So nations like the U S Japan and Soviet union are saying like, Hey, we can import our own solar energies. We can give it to ourselves and import it to others. We don't have to be under the control of these other nations for their energy we can do it on their own and it's cleaner and it's more efficient and all that so we're building on this whole energy crisis thing because i remember back then yes i was alive in the 1980s and i remember some of it energy (laughs) crisis was a thing i remember you know when ronald reagan was elected president i thought the energy crisis was caused by jimmy carter so (laughs) so i remember as a kid thinking oh good ron reagan's gonna come in we won't have an energy crisis anymore (laughs) 
<laughs> Yay, propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, th- I, th- I found this whole part really fascinating. The kind of modern or, or near future take on what was going on. And you're right. They don't give an exact date. They do say at one point that they've dated this to having been launched 187 years ago. And then one of the other, the historian that we talked to later says, Oh, I think you might be a little off on that year or something like that. And then they don't address it anymore. Add to that the fact that at this time, it still hadn't been pinned down exactly when Star Trek takes place, like how far in the future that takes place. So they really kind of muddied that question there and just made it a little vague, much like most of the dating of Star Trek had been up to that point. So I think it was actually Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in 1982 that even first said in the 23rd century at the start of the the movie. So, you know, it, it was pretty vague. But I loved that we had this kind of near future world and and this kind of extrapolation of what the energy crisis might look like and the the different nations and this station that's being built in the L5 position of of Earth orbit and becoming its own nation and all of that stuff. I really found all of that very fascinating. Yeah, and that's why I'm kind of getting that that could be its own book, right? That their own story. You could go in much detail about the characters on the station and going through this and deciding to become their own nation and, you know, and then they actually leave Earth's orbit, you know, and they're on their quest in a sense to find a new home or whatever and I mean, there's a lot of detail there. And one of the things that really jumped out to me while reading this also was the mention that the ship would have traveled to Wolf 359. And that mm-hmm. freaked me out for a second because I was like, wait, Wolf 359? That's from the next generation. That's the Borg. That... But wait, this book came out in 1980. That's seven years before TNG came out. And I had to go to Memory Beta and look that up or Memory Alpha or whatever and see that it was in Rick Steinbach's Star Trek Space Flight chronology back then that I didn't really realize that that had been out there in, I guess, fandom and other materials and was used in TNG. I thought TNG came up with that themselves. Well, what's funny is they probably didn't even get that from fandom because Wolf 359 is a real actual star that you can see in the sky. Oh, right see, now. I didn't even yeah. realize that. Yeah. So I just really quickly pulled it up on Wikipedia because I don't have a huge amount of knowledge of that, but it's a red dwarf star located in the constellation Leo. Uh, so yeah, if it, you could go out and look at Wolf 359 right now. Okay, well, that's cool. But it's cool that was used in this and then later in mm-hmm. TNG, you know, because it really, because when I first read that, I thought, oh, yeah, the Battle of Wolf 359. And I was like, but wait, that hadn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny how like later, later stuff, it, it just gives it a different connotation to us reading it now. And I, I kind of love that. And here all this time I've been looking at Larry Nemechek's star charts thinking, oh, he put Wolf 359 here, but... That's where it actually is for real. Okay. 
Well, stay tuned because we have a lot more to talk about in this novel right after this brief message. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters for helping us to bring you this episode of Positively Trek. We truly could not do it without your support. To join the ranks of our Patreon supporters, such as Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, Paul D. Kinnear, and John Blaber, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can join at any level to receive perks such as early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content. And at higher levels, there are shoutouts and associations producer credits, and much more. Thank you once again for your support of Positively Trek. And now, let's get back to the show. I gotta ask, uh, regarding this colony, did it remind you of another novel that we've read relatively recently? Uh, no, I'm trying to think what you're referring to. I'm going to kick myself as soon as you say this. No, it's okay. Well, we uh, the lost era novels the very first novel of the lost era with uh sulu and and chekhov and the excelsior they had the story of a number of l5 habitats they called them the o'neill colonies that were built at the l5 orbit points as well and interestingly enough in that story that structure was also kind of blasted away from earth and sent on a journey across the galaxy and stuff in kind of very different circumstances. That was an accident. This was like a very well thought out plan kind of thing. But I was really struck by some of those similarities that like, Oh, interesting. Just kind of the same basic story idea for how this group went out there and then would one day reconnect with people from earth without realizing they were the same people. I I just thought that was really interesting that we get that kind of parallel there. And that's one where I really was wondering also, like, was there some influence from this story on the writers of the Sundered? That was the Lost Era novel. Yes. Yeah. Could be. I mean, yeah, because this novel had been out for a while. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't know. But even when you're talking about that, it made me think of, something that was said in this novel about Spock's great, great grandmother was part of the founding of the Federation. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting too. And I was like, Oh, the fe- founding of the Federation wasn't that long ago. And then I thought, well, but Vulcans live a long time. So he would have a great, great grandmother still alive during that time. Yeah. That was one part where I was kind of, cause like most readers, I'm taking knowledge that we learn later and applying it back to this and trying to make it fit. And I was kind of going in my head. I was like, yeah, that, I think that kind of works. Like mm-hmm. we could make those years work. And even the 187 years allowed for some fudging would put it in like the mid 21st century, maybe right around Zephram Cochran's warp flight or somewhere in there. Uh, you know, so yeah, there's, it's it's it works. It kind of fits, you know? Yeah, it does. It's interesting how things like that can still kind of fit. It, you fudge it a little or whatever, and it, it can still work. And that's what I do love about reading the old novels is the perspective of what they think occurs and when and how and, you know, that sort of thing. And then you relate it to what has been done since. And then sometimes it fits well and sometimes it doesn't so much. And Yeah, sometimes there's a whole Earth Kazinti war at some point that you have to kind of finagle in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of like when we were reading Federation. 
mm-hmm. with Zemfer and Cochran, and you know, it was a different take on that. But then, in some ways, you can kind of fudge some of it and make it work, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But then also this long story that we're getting about the ship and how it got into space and all these things. I we wanted to ask you about specs. There's this librarian on the Enterprise. And we also get this description of the library and how Kirk was very instrumental in having a full library on his starship and how that proved to work so well that it's required that other starships have these libraries so they have all this data on the ships. And I thought it kind of felt a bit dated to me, but as we're saying about fudging things, but it also still works for me. And I was just Mm -hmm. curious what your thoughts were. It's funny because it didn't really feel dated to me, but like on retrospect and and thinking back on it, I think it doesn't feel dated to me within the world of Star Trek, the original series and that whole aesthetic and how we've become used to that. If I think about it with regards to like the real world and extrapolating forward from now, yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It kind of feels dated. They would access some sort of network and, and have all that information it just there would be no question about it but within like the world of star trek if that makes sense it, it just felt like oh that fits in with what we see in the 60s series and stuff with that aesthetic and specs was an interesting character as well i actually really enjoyed this character i thought he was kind of cool the only complaint i had and it's just one of those things you stumble upon when you're reading is when Kirk first talk, first talks to him and says, Lieutenant, um, Lieutenant, and he says, oh, people call me Specs, sir. And I'm like, but that's not what the captain asked. <laughs> What's <laughs> right. your name, son? But anyway, that was, I was like, hey, some some military decorum here, people. Come on. Yeah, because if the captain has to call him, uh, Lieutenant Specs, like. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> come on. Right, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I actually really enjoyed the character. I thought he was kind of cool. And I'm like, oh, I kind of wish we saw this character on the show. Yeah, because he has all this historical knowledge and he goes in some great detail. He even apologizes and Kirk's like, no, keep going. This is very interesting. And he's definitely a historian because he knows all this detail and he goes through all this library of data and you know, when I thought about this library and other ships are now going to have a library so they can pull all this historical information, I mean, I can do that now from my laptop. But then I was mm-hmm. thinking, well, even if the Internet's around, yeah, and you could do it from your phone. Dan just held up his phone. I mean, what's a small <laughs> device, right? And they've got a full room on a starship. But then it makes sense in some ways because you're not always connected. You know, that you mm-hmm. you were saying about a network. Well, if you're out in deep space, it may take you a while to tap in. I mean, well, OK, talking about your phone, right? How many times have you been somewhere and you can't get a connection? You're you got poor signal, right? Yeah. Well, I would think if you're out in deep space for five year missions, you're disconnected for a while and you can't access the Internet. Right. So to house that data as much as you can on the ship and have somebody who's a specialist there that reads it and so you don't have to look everything up. They can, they can find it for you. They know where to look and they know some of this off the top of their head because they research it. So at first it felt dated to me, but then when I thought it that way, then it worked for me. So, yeah, I appreciated the addition of him and, and we've seen historians in 
the original series as well before Lieutenant MacGyver's from the, from Space Seed yes. kind of pops into my head. The one officer they added at one point towards the end, though, I was kind of scratching my head a little bit, and that was the legal officer. Do you remember oh, her? Oh, yeah. Who's, like, giving, like, Kirk legal advice on the Prime Directive, and <laughs> Kirk's like, no, no, just, yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was interesting. I was like, I'd never thought of that before. And uh, the way she just kind of randomly pops up for that one chapter, and then we never hear from her again was a little strange. She got booted from the Enterprise after that. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it said somewhere in here, someone said, uh, made the comment that they're always seem to be breaking the prime directive in every mission in some manner. <laughs> yeah. It was something like, why is it every time the prime directive comes up, it's because we're going to break it or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that was a little bit of a meta commentary, I think. <laughs> well, speaking of David Gerald, who wrote the trouble tribbles, I remember talking to you a few days ago when we were starting to read the novel, you were ahead of me on it. And you said that, you know, there was some of that humor in there and I picked up on some of it. Yeah. That some of the Bantam novels, as we were talking about earlier, I remember didn't have the characters maybe just right. And didn't even have that kind of humor to it. And it's not the slapstick humor. It's not the Star Trek five humor, you know, but mm. it's just people being real and the humor in those interactions between people who view things differently and their personalities. And I found a lot of that in here. And I wouldn't say this is a comedic novel or a comedic story, but I think he got the characters right. I think so too, for the most part. There were a couple times I felt Spock wasn't quite written correctly, just with occasional lines and stuff. Like, uh, I can't remember. Kirk asked something about, you know, the emotional state of something, and Spock replied, How should I know? <laughs> and I was like, That's a little <laughs> abrupt for Spock, but okay, I get it. So there was a couple little moments like that. I was like, I don't think Spock would say that. But other than that, like, I think like the relationships and for the most part, the voices of the characters just came through really, really well in this to the point where I was generally impressed with how real the characters felt. Yeah, I think I, there was a line in there where Spock says, how the f*** should I know? And, you know, I thought it sounded just <laughs> Something like, like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, there you go. There's humor right there. Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, I do recall something. Maybe it was that line. I do remember there was a couple times that Spock didn't quite feel right to me. Yeah. Yeah, there there were a couple lines like that. But yeah, that was the one that, that I just remembered off the top of my head. But I, I think there were a few others. But yeah, it just kind of leapt yeah. off the page a bit for me. But he doesn't have a big presence in this either. Not a huge amount. Yeah, he's kind of there for the most part. <laughs> he's just there going, how the hell should I know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and we also, and I had no idea because I've never read this novel before and it wasn't in the synopsis, but Kevin Riley is a prominent character in this. So if you're a big Riley fan, this is the novel for you. I really enjoyed mm -hmm. seeing more Kevin Riley. I mean, the last time I read anything about him was the last year's novels where he's working as like Kirk's assistant at Starfleet headquarters, but it was nice to see him have the big role in this. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I liked his use here. And that was another voice I feel like the author got fairly well. Like that kind of, we don't see a lot of Riley in the original series. I think he's in two episodes, but he still, his presence here felt right. And it was kind of nice to have him be the young officer who's kind of having to deal with this stuff. I'm glad they didn't just go with Chekhov, you know, they brought someone else who's kind of young and, and a bit inexperienced in to do that stuff. So it was a nice perspective to have in the book. And speaking of Chekhov, we do get some of him in this, but I like that we have Chekhov on the ship and also Erickson Mares. So, mm-hmm. you know, we never see them together because in the animated series, Chekhov wasn't on there, but in this novel, they're all there together. So I, I like that. That was pretty cool. Yeah, very brief appearances by Eric's and Mares, but it was still cool that they were there. Yeah, because I think it was uh, this other character we're going to talk about, Kathleen Erwin, who her friends call her Catwin. Kevin Riley confronts her or on the sh- on her ship on the L five ship, or, which is called the Wanderer. He shoots or whatever, stuns her. She's now in the Enterprise. She's in sick bay, and of course, then she wakes up and she's like freaking out. Where am I? Who are you, people? Oh, you're from the other part of the ship. You're the enemy. We're in battle with you, or whatever. And she builds this relationship, a friendship with Kevin Riley, and then she sees Eric's, and she, well, there's someone with three arms. That's really strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a nice surprise. I wasn't expecting that in the novel, but. I guess, you know, that would have been the most recent Star Trek would have been the animated series at the time this was written. Or I guess the motion picture would have come out the year before this was published. But as far as when it was written, I'm not sure when that was. Yeah, he was probably writing this while the motion picture was in production or when, you know, in the middle of writing this, maybe when the motion picture came out. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he probably wasn't referencing. It. That's the other thing I always thought was a little odd is these books at that time after the motion picture, most of them still took place before the motion picture. I would think when a big movie comes out, all the publishing would want to have it take place in that motion picture time frame. I don't know back then they were so worried about, oh, well, we don't want to contradict anything that they might do later in a movie. Uh, but yeah. Well, there was probably a whole bunch of vocal fans saying like, oh, this isn't real Star Trek, this new crap. We want just the old stuff. And they were just pandering to them. Oh, that never uh, happens. No, that, that's far-fetched. Those that's aren't real fans. They wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Marvel Comics, their line at that time did take place after the motion picture. So it wasn't like it was a place you couldn't go to, you know? Mm-hmm, so, absolutely, yeah. I have some of those comics, so. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I haven't read them all, though. But my brother had one. He wasn't even a Star Trek fan. I don't know why he got it, but I have it now. <laughs> I took it from him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Liberated it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's a few things like that I've taken from him <laughs> that he doesn't care about. <laughs> but then let's talk about Catwin or Arwen or whatever name she wants to be called at this point. Uh, what'd you think of her character? I thought she was really interesting. I liked that kind of perspective of an inhabitant of this world who has been taught certain things incorrectly her entire life. You know, this kind of propaganda world that that she's a part of, that they've been taught various things. And 
what really interested me is when the book kind of briefly touched on questions of theology and what someone from this world believes, someone who's never been on a planet, who's always been inside this walled system, what that would do to their beliefs and that sort of thing. And I I loved some of the stuff where they're talking and, and like she's being asked questions about what she believes, like, there were smaller ships before that, that helped build this ship. Well, where did those ships come from? Well, I don't know. Like that's, that doesn't the, I'm not a theologian. I don't know about God. I can't answer that. And it was just so cool that that's like the questions that we ask today. Like, well, the, you know, if the universe started at this moment, what was before that? Well, nothing, uh, God created it. Well, what created God? Well, I don't know. That's that's we, nothing. He's always been here or whatever, right? We have these areas where we get to and our, our, the answers we have aren't satisfying, right? And it's the same thing for her when you go down back through the history of ships. You know, she can't quite get to the conception of a planet that these things came from because her beliefs don't allow for that. I thought that was really cool. I remember them trying to explain to her what a planet was, that you could live on a planet. And she's thinking, no, you would live in the planet because she's always lived in something. The idea that you could be on the surface and the gravity keeps you onto that surface. Yeah. Yeah. She couldn't comprehend that. Yeah. Our gravity keeps us in, in it. Like our gravity, because it's done by spinning, you're thrown to the outside, you're pushed out to the outside. So (laughs) my favorite was when they're explaining that. And uh, I can't remember who it is. Who is it that's explaining the gravity thing to her? I I was trying to remember that too. Was it Chekhov? Was it him or was it Kevin Riley? It wasn't Kevin Riley because Kevin Riley was there and he was like, oh, he was really impressed by that. But this person basically says like, well, your your world spins this direction and it throws you to the outside and that's how you you uh, your gravity works, right? It's like, yeah. Well, on Earth and on planets, the gravity works the other way because it spins the other way. And she goes, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Which, of course, that doesn't make sense at all. But that was really funny. I thought that was kind of cute. Okay, yeah. So we're looking it up here. Uh, So it was a conversation where Specs was explaining it with Riley and and Catwin there. So yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that was was a good scene. Yeah, I like this character. You know, the way she talked was she was shortened sentences. She'd leave words out, you know, like instead of, I'm going to walk over there. It's like, I walk there, you know, something very choppy. And they were saying on the crew about how language has kind of evolved with these people in a different manner. And her point was she could talk just like the enterprise crew people could talk, but she says, you know, that takes up more time. They've shortened their language. It's faster (laughs) to talk that way. And I kept thinking about texting, you know, where people mm-hmm. say like, oh, you know, we're losing our sense of of grammar and, and sentence structure and stuff by shortening our language and how we text and how we communicate in that manner and, and how it evolves. And I thought, in a sense, it's almost like they found a way to text each other in shorter phrases, you know, and they're speaking yeah. in that way. I thought that was really funny, too. 
where, you know, she's speaking that way. Like I talk like you, you want me talk like you. And Riley says, yeah, you know, if you can, well, sure, of course I can, but I simply do not understand why you would use so many words to say such a simple thing this way. <laughs> so it was like this really long, complicated sentence. And I was like, Oh, okay. So she sounds dumb, right? She sounds like the language skills have regressed, but that's not the case at all. They're just as intelligent, just as articulate as us, but that's just not how their language has evolved. I thought that was hilarious. That scene was really funny. I did too, but then I also noticed not everybody on the ship will talk like her, you know? Mm-hmm. There was one part where I noticed, yeah, the the there was like a code switching thing going on, and I thought it was a bit of a mistake. The Captain Frost, I think it was, was talking to Kirk, and he was speaking norm like the way we would speak. Yep. But then he turns to his guard and talks in that same shorthand way. So I was like, Oh, that's actually really clever attention to detail that he's speaking to these people on their level. But then when he talks to his own crew members or his science advisor, he speaks their way, or at least the couple times I noticed that anyway. See, this is why we read Star Trek novels. This is fun. (laughs) You know, it just goes, you know, beyond what you just see on screen. There's just so much more Star Trek that people aren't experiencing and it's so good. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now there's the culture on the Wanderer and I like when the Enterprise is approaching the ship and they're like, well, you know, we don't know what these people think, you know, what we perceive something is from our experiences, but they've had a whole life of experiences that differ. So their experiences, their perceptions of things are going to be different. So them interacting with us or learning from us, you know, it could drive them mad. And Spock's like, well, mad's not the right word. Irrational behavior, (laughs) you know? And it was like even to go and display maybe irrational behavior to them because even acting normal might come across as irrational but there's been like the upper levels and the lower levels that have been in battle on the ship for a long period of time. And, and all they know is wars and there's different segments of the lower levels and such. And like you said, there's uh, the captain frost that kind of took over the ship. And you know, what did you think about that whole concept of the, the different groups warring with each other? I thought that was interesting. Like the separation between them and, and how each side has characterized the other. So like the upper level, they call the lower level people savages, right? And they've regressed and they're, you know, have all these crazy beliefs and, and all this sort of stuff. And then we actually get there and we see that they're, they're of course much more civilized than we would expect them to be. And they're very technically able and that sort of thing, you know, the kind of propaganda used on the upper levels to demonize literally the people in the lower levels. I thought that was really fascinating. I I would have loved like an even deeper exploration of that. Like you said, there's like three or four different novels in this novel that, you know, you could really go deep and investigate some of this stuff. Yeah. Cause I like how the, I keep wanting to say the president, I don't know why, but the captain, captain frost, when he captures Riley and Catwin, he, makes them fall down like the chute into these nets 
down to the mm. lower levels. And it's like even thought that the lower level people might eat them, <laughs> you know, because they're savages. But they welcome people who come down there because they've been rejected by the upper levels and been rejected by the captain. So they're really more their people if they've been rejected. Mm-hmm. I, I just like that whole concept of, you know, the there's two warring factions on the ship that feels like they have to go in different directions and they don't really understand in a lot of ways why they're fighting. You know, it's just because, because of this is how it's been for the longest period of time. And yeah, I, I found it interesting. It wasn't my favorite part of the book, but I did, I did find that concept to, to be interesting. I kept trying to picture what the ship really looks like and how they're divided in these levels that's the one thing about star trek novels that i wish in some ways we'd get sometimes and that is some artistic representation of what things look like yeah and the the description was really interesting because of course the decks are like layers of an onion of this thing rather than like we would think of decks of a ship so because it's it spins for gravity the upper levels are like the outer levels yeah. and they have lower gravity than the lower levels, which are like the inner levels that have a higher gravity because they're spinning faster, basically. Yeah. It was really interesting to kind of try and picture that and how the levels like connected with each other. And the very outer level was all these farms and, and, kind of a fake sky and stuff they had to like replace light bulbs that represented the stars yeah it's really fascinating yeah and there there's mountain ranges and deserts and i'm trying to comprehend like how vast and how big this is to have all that to look out at and this isn't a holodeck right these are actual mountains and, and deserts that are on the ship and yeah they can control the weather they can control the gravity the lights and this lower level is used to being in darkness that that's they use darkness as their advantage when finding the upper level because they can they've adapted to darkness that they can find their way through it and that's the advantage that they have and so when scotty's on the ship trying to help which you know we'll get to this part later but scotty's on the ship trying to get control of it and the lights come on. And so they couldn't turn the lights off for what he's doing. So he makes the lights brighter and Kirk and crew and everybody puts goggles on so they can fight the upper level. I thought that was clever. Stuff like that kind of made me think of gold key comics a little bit too. Yeah. Just a little bit like the goggles and the, some of the stuff. It's like, Hmm, interesting. And I don't know, but don't you like that stuff in a way? Oh, totally. Yeah. I was, I was all over it. Yeah. I kind of like a campiness of things too, because what we think in the 21st century, we could look into the future and there could be things that they're doing that we think are campy. They're just absolutely normal. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there's that danger that Chekhov points out that the wanderer is getting close to a star and the star is going to pull them to make an alteration that will send them into the galactic whirlpool, as you were describing earlier, you know, the, the different black holes and things and all that, you know, it's a dangerous place to go into and they have to steer the ship away 
from that gravitational pull with the star soon or it's going to be too late. So now, of course, everything's at the last minute. You know, we come just in time, you know, <laughs> to start working on this. And that's why Kirk and crew get on the ship to try to get the captain to cooperate and the lower levels and everybody get, you know, and Sky's there trying to fix things and such. And, you know, in some ways, I think it would have been cool to see the ship go into the galactic whirlpool. <laughs> but no, they're going to save the day. Yeah, I I love that. Again, this is where I feel like the the author has done his homework and that sort of thing. Like the the time scales involved, like the four years needed to decelerate to avoid this, and the you know we needed to start this last week, basically, kind of thing. I love that the kind of idea of these big, huge, vast distances in space and the time frames needed in order to make these journeys or make these course corrections. I, I really enjoyed that. I really felt like it wasn't some sort of weird techno babble thing. It felt like the research was done to make this as realistic as possible. I truly appreciated that as a reader. Yeah. Sometimes when authors put that in, it could go a little over my head this time. It didn't, but I like that about Star Trek novels is going to the science because this is science fiction and we can't go into depth like this on the shows. And sometimes, like I said, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And if I'm not trying to hurry through a book for a podcast, I might spend a little more time rereading it and really trying to understand it. And sometimes I think about how I hear a lot of Star Trek fans say, well, I love Star Trek because it's this vision of the future of harmony and people getting along and accepting one another and the meaning and all that. And that's important to me too. But a lot of things about Star Trek that attracted me to it was reading these novels and just learning about science theory or these mm -hmm. or scientific. And I just was like really fascinated by philosophy and about astronomy and all these things, even though I didn't know about Wolf 357, but anyway, anyway, 359. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I found that to really make it more compelling to me than Star Wars did. It was just like, okay, Star Wars, they're fighting into space. But when I read Star Trek, it's like, I'm going to tell you how space works or how this anomaly works and, and why what is a black hole and not just tell you there's a black hole. I'm going to tell you what a black hole is and what it does and whether that science is true or not, or just a theory I found always very interesting. And that's what I love about science fiction. And that's one of the aspects that I love about star Trek. So this novel proves that it can really work to your point because it's taking the time to explain that and teach that to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated all of that as well, both in my love of Star Trek from when I was a kid and reading this novel. Yeah, it just it it hit all those right buttons for me that, yeah, I guess the best way I can put it is, like I said, it, it felt like it wasn't just kind of thrown together. It felt like the research was done to like, does this make sense? Okay. How, how would this work? Kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I hear people talk about, let's say Star Trek discovery and there's something in there. Oh, that they wouldn't work that way. That doesn't really make quite scientific sense and you know, whatever. 
But then it's like, okay, but does the mirror universe really make that much sense? I mean, it does and it doesn't. I mean, it's kind of fantasy in a sense, you know? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you got to have some entertainment to it too. It's just, it's a theory. It's an idea, you know? Think about it, yeah. you know? Yeah, so. the people who say that are still okay with like transporters beaming you across vast distances and warp drive, which they're all, as far as we know, theoretically impossible right now. So thank you. Know. you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're just so used to it now. We think it's real. So I guess. So, okay. One of the things I also, there's two other things I wanted to point out. The bug spot event. <laughs> this <laughs> is some Starfleet Academy test that just in short, they also call it the surprise. And basically, it's putting you in situations that can be predicted and how it would be handled and what's the course of actions that would be made. And and they're talking about Kirk and this and stuff. And it mind me of the, of course, the Kobayashi Maru test in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. But again, this novel came out two years before The Wrath of Khan where that was introduced. But I, it's those little elements in there that made me enjoy this because it reminded me of the Kobayashi Maru, but this is like a different take or a different test for Academy students. Yeah. I liked that as well. And it was the, the, the moon Rover, right. Running over the muddy areas that were like spattering mud spots up on your, on your helmet. And, you know, there's a few things you can do. You can uh, stop and try and figure it out. You can call for help and basically they're saying like anybody that calls for help is automatically disqualified from ever being a captain. <laughs> and Kirk took the test and looked at it, figured it out and like made some makeshift mud flaps for the tires and then kept going. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, of course he did. <laughs> and it's almost like, well, what does this have to do with the story? Right? It doesn't, but it's like one little aspect that the author decides, let me tell you something. Now that we're just mentioned about, Kirk as a captain or how Kirk's going to handle the situation or something about the Academy. Let me just tell you about this test, you know, and it just brings more information about this universe and about the Federation and Starfleet to the reader. That's kind of fun, you know, kind of interesting. I would love for something on screen to refer to the bug spot event, like maybe Mm -hmm. in lower decks, like, you know, Boiler's like, well, I passed the bug spot event test in, the academy totally yeah (laughs) and then okay this part i thought was really weird (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) the mac murray empire (laughs) and essentially there's this guy who goes out into space (laughs) and he discover his name is mac murray he discovers this inhabitable planet and he starts his own empire on it But then when he eventually reaches out to the Federation, the Federation, he feels like they snub him. They're not really paying much attention to him. So he decides he's declaring war on the Federation. And then there's like these, I don't remember, like some kind of transport ships or something like that, that he starts attacking a few of them or something. So the Enterprise comes in and Kirk tries to settle the matter and then this guy's got such an ego. He just wants attention. So Kurt's like, okay, we surrender. 
we're going to turn over the whole Federation, the whole galaxy over to you. You are now the ruler of the galaxy. And the guy's like, thank you so much. Now I'm being respected. Now somebody's actually paying attention to me. Thank you, Captain Kirk. And Kirk's like, well, you realize all these things that are going on in the universe are now your responsibility. You know, all this turmoil, all these wars, all these political things are happening. And he's like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. Oh, I'll just turn it over to you, Kirk, and you handle it. And so when Kirk's doing his five-year mission, McMurray thinks he's doing it to represent McMurray and take care of these things for him as he just sits on his little world thinking he's ruling the galaxy. I was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. And yeah, so this McMurray guy makes Kirk the Royal High Minister Plenipotentiary in total command of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and he, there, there's even like a, a little like legal document hanging in the mess hall that declares Kirk as such. Yeah. And, and Catwin <laughs> sees it and says, you said you weren't gods, but you are. Look. And she reads that. <laughs> and Riley's like, oh, God. <laughs> no, we're no, that's a joke. Do you know jokes? Uh <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. And it was just showing like Kirk's outside the box thinking and stuff. But uh, and that was it was because of that incident that Starfleet required libraries be on all starships because Kirk basically got this idea by reading history and stuff or something. Like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of strange. It really doesn't have much to do with the story. But it really, it's a bit odd. <laughs> yeah, but it informs us like, you know, a little bit about Kirk, but that, that almost feels like a gold key comic to me. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. That I got that impression for sure. But it was fun. You know, it, mm -hmm. it really was kind of interesting. Is there anything else about this novel that you want to mention that we didn't cover? Uh, nothing too groundbreaking. I think we covered most of what I wanted to talk about. There's some fun stuff in it, like using the weird little like balloon projections as distractions during the final battle and, yeah. uh, the kind of final confrontation between Kirk and Captain Frost and then the, the science advisor and how that all wraps up. The other thing I just kind of noticed at the beginning that was odd was some of the language used in the novel for technical terms and stuff. The author was kind of inventing a few of his own. And one that kept coming up was sending a subspace squirt back to Starfleet. <laughs> I just like, let's, let's call it something else. Can we, <laughs> I did highlight in the book, uh, the reference of using a FM or AM radio frequencies, you know, mm -hmm. and I was like, eh, mm -hmm. not so much maybe, but, <laughs> but again, it, it kind of adds charm to the book, you know? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, I really enjoyed this one for the most part. And so like much to my surprise, I, and I'm maybe not surprised because I know how talented and imaginative Dave, David Gerald is as a writer. So it shouldn't be that surprising. But I guess, again, because I've dismissed these Bantam books for so long, I, I kind of don't give them the credit that they're due for being those first Star Trek novels. So, yeah, I, I definitely really enjoyed this one. I would recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it before. Check it out. And I would have to give it four out of five 
floating little creatures that are the prowlers and growlers and what whatever the last one was because <laughs> those are hilarious i can't believe you did that rating because i was gonna do that too and i was like oh no we didn't even talk about those i'm like so dan's not gonna use that because we didn't oh i'm sorry but that's great because now <laughs> yes that was one of the things we didn't talk about that was those were used as distraction <laughs> i mean that's kind of funny too but um yeah i i yeah i like this book I feel like I haven't been fair to what I think of the Bantam novels that maybe I read a few back in the day that didn't really work for me then. They may work for me now. I don't know. But it's doesn't, you know, those few novels don't represent the whole line because I'm starting to discover there are some good Bantam novels there. They may not be the best, but I'm enjoying some of them. And this one I really enjoyed. So yeah, I give this novel four out of five balloons floating around the Wanderer, but that one balloon is still kind of trying to find its way. Nice. So, I love it. There you go. So maybe we'll do another Bantam novel this year, uh, if anybody wants to suggest one, because, and I'm glad I just said if anybody wants to suggest one, this one was suggested to us. And this was done a couple years ago, two or three years ago, by Dan Smithwit. He's Daniel on Goodreads. And he had mentioned about, he read something online about, you know, some novels and that this one was mentioned as something that might be worth reading. And he, ha I don't think he had read it at the time. He's now read it since because I reached out to him to let him know that we were going to review this novel. So it's because of, of his request that uh, we decided to include it in this one. And I'm glad, Daniel, that you requested this. So there you go. Uh, You're here. Thank you. So if you want to recommend the next one, we'll consider it. And anybody else <laughs> who wants to also. So let me ask the Dan here on this show, where can people find you online if they want to talk about Bantam novels with you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And of course, in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. And Bruce, before we get to where people can find you, I just want to wish you a very happy new year. This is our final episode of 2021. And uh, it's it's coming out on New Year's Eve, interestingly enough. So um, happy new year, Bruce. And I'm really excited to do this show with you in 2022. Yes. Happy new year to you too, Dan, and to all the listeners. I hope this is a great year. I hope this is a year we conquer and kick out COVID for good, but I don't hear, think hear. it will be, but maybe we'll get closer to that. And, uh, yeah, I, I wish everybody a great new year and I'm looking forward to a new year of new Star Trek novels, new Star Trek series. I mean, come on. And who knows? Maybe we'll get some more news about Star Trek movies because that never happens. vey. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get we'll get news of three new directors that come and go for <laughs> the movies. I don't know. But anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And you can find me on Goodreads. Look for me there. We have a Goodreads group that shows you the novels coming up that we're going to review here on the show. And what else? Oh, yeah. I'm occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast. 
This is the last year of 2022 for that podcast. Apparently, things could always change. And I've been occasionally doing things on literary tracks. And through this podcast, I have been drinking 19 crimes. So, (laughs) because it's been a rough week at work. So, I'm already ushering the new year with a good drink. So, there you go. I wish I had a glass of champagne to toast the new year with you here but uh yeah well we'll have to do that do that sometime <laughs> and i apologize if i've slurred a few times here <laughs> <laughs> it's all good but hey nothing better than talking star trek novels with dan and having you guys all listen and please always feel free to just let us know what you think of any of this stuff and you know we're on mm-hmm. patreon we could use your support there and want to thank our supporters on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash positively trek and support us there. Just a dollar a month is appreciated. It gives you access to some of the bonus content that we put in there. And sometimes we release these episodes a little early and you can get that there. And also you can email us at positively trek at gmail.com. We've had some people do that. And you can follow us on Twitter posit- at positively trek. And also on Instagram. We don't post much on Instagram, but we are there. And I think that's about it. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. And until next time, hey, we're going into 2022. So you know what you need to do for the new year? You need to stay positive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.